Welcome back to Coffee and Cannabis. It's the show where I interview professionals, researchers, and thought leaders in the cannabis space to help bring you deeper insight into who these individuals are and how they're shaping the cannabis industry. Joining me in today's episode is Brett Puffenbarger. Brett is the CEO of cannabis consulting agency Good Ideas, co-host of the Cannabis Detector podcast. He's bridging the gap from bong to boardroom. He's the man with the PBR tattoo. <laughs> Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks. I, I don't think I've ever been introduced as the guy with the PBR <laughs> tattoo, but that is a true statement. It's something that when you when you first told me stuck with me and I haven't been able to get it off my mind. Now that they do cannabis beverages, I'm over here like, how have they not hired me for something yet? Like, I feel like I'm primed for like, come on, guys, let me be a spokesperson or something right. like <laughs> those beverages. What, what do beverages look like over there? Like, I know. Can you guys do wines or anything like we can only do 10 milligram as a cap? So in the States, it's kind of a, a state by state thing. And beverages are a little different than I think people would think they are like obviously there are like cannabis wines and stuff and if we really want to get into the science of it i mean what is cannabis most closely related to it's most closely related right. to hops and it's not that different but our beverage category is a lot more of the water soluble emulsified mm -hmm. concentrates put into a beverage mm -hmm. so like side note uh edibles don't do a lot for me like mm -hmm. I, I can ingest a silly amount of edibles and not get that standard effect that everybody else can and has nothing to do with like me being cool or like a tolerance <laughs> level thing and it's just a way my body processes uh so i ended up i don't know a couple months ago when we were in oregon doing some work and uh i tried my very first like actual legitimate cannabis mm. beverage and it was ludicrous it was something like 200 milligrams yeah. and it was supposed to be a cola so it looked like an rc cola like mm -hmm. the blue and red can mm -hmm. all the stuff that you would expect a cola to look like except mm -hmm. the liquid itself was milky white hmm. but it tasted like soda Interesting. so it was a really yeah dude it was really weird so I, I don't have a huge amount of experience in that world though i do find it interesting that a lot of people are convinced that the cannabis beverage market is going to explode and it's mm. going to compete with alcohol. And I, I personally don't see them as an analog for each other. I don't mm. think the effects work in the same way. I think that inhalation is a lot closer to how alcohol affects you, like as right. in speed to effect, duration right. of effect, things like that. Hmm. So me and cannabis beverages have a weird history, but if the PBR people ever listen, I'm really <laughs> convinced that theirs is probably the best. I love that. They came out with a couple seltzers too, right? A couple cannabis seltzers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did. They, they threw them all over California. I saw a big kind of like PR push for it and they've been going through a lot of cool changes as a, as a company. You know what I mean? I don't think a lot of people realize that they didn't brew their own beer for a couple dozen years. And then they finally got their own brewery back. They put out a, a what do they call it? A moonshine or like a corn liquor. Then they went into the cannabis beverage space and they're really hitting the other market. So I find it really interesting that they're the first, I guess you would call the major alcohol company mm -hmm. to make a play into the space. Hmm. And they already kind of had that built in culture. You know what I mean? Like they're very punk rock. Because they are. They're very punk rock. They're yeah. very counterculture. If you look at their advertising and stuff, it is not that different to what we see from like a, a black or gray market version of cannabis or that very like Jungle Boys, Seven Tin Labs, like one of the people 
push, if you will. So I, I don't know. I think if any of the the you know alcohol, tobaccos, consumer packaged goods brands stand a chance, they're pretty high up mm. on the list, legitimately, and not just because yeah. I'm a fan, but actually from like a fit within their their pantheon or their mm-hmm. cornucopia of products. Yeah, I, that that's an interesting topic of conversation is these alcohol and these tobacco industries getting involved in cannabis, right? Like look at Molson Coors or Constellation brands here in Canada, they're looking to get involved. How, how do you feel about them? I don't want to say tainting the image of cannabis, but you know, cannabis culture and who, you know, kind of the, the wellness that we attribute it to, I, I feel like that, that might get tainted with these, these alcohol, these tobacco brands coming. How do you feel about them bringing their money and their ideas in? <laughs> I just posted about this on LinkedIn today. Oh, yeah. So I, I think I think a lot of what tobacco and alcohol bring to the table is useful. Mm-hmm. But I think at their core, they are an, the antithesis of what we should be aiming for as cannabis. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people want to put us in the category of being a vice. You know what I mean? In the right. same category as tobacco and alcohol. But the truth of the matter is we're probably better served at focusing on being a wellness brand. Mm -hmm. So I think on the aspects of storytelling, uh, on the aspects of supply chain management, on the aspects of distribution, they're bringing something positive to the table. But I I think it's kind of funny that you brought up tainting the industry of cannabis because that's exactly what they're doing Mm -hmm. from my personal perspective. And it's really funny that legal industries are tainting the image or the the culture of a quote unquote illegal sure. or newly legal industry. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Cannabis had a culture 20, 30, 40 years before any of us could put it on our resume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's true. No, 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 it's true. Um, and that's what bothers me. There's a lot of people that are very passionate about cannabis and that want to be involved. But then it, when it comes to being having to monetize it and having to you know, make a profit off of it, that's when it, things kind of get dicey and things start to feel different. So how have you kind of navigated that, you know, passion and needing to make money off off the industry? Oh, man, this is my favorite topic. Good. actually. <laughs> uh, so I've said this a bazillion times before. I'm sure I've been quoted in, in some article or, or have a video out there. But I'll repeat it because I think it's a worthwhile mentality. I think that cannabis is too different industries at the same time and we're trying to learn how to coexist you know you have the og stoner culture the guys that look like me with an upturned hat and board shorts and sleeve tattoos that give a shit about taking bong rips uh and then you kind of have the other side where you have the suits and ties i call them chads but i'm sure we could come (laughs) up with a less derogatory term and honestly i think the truth lies in the middle. Mm. I think one side is the heart and one side is the head. Mm. And right now they're not matching up. The appropriate piece of that equation is Mm. not lined up to its equivalent piece in the overall culture of what we have going on. And I think we see that, you know, you being Canadian, the Canadian LPs are struggling and they're struggling hard and they're falling apart fast. And it all kind of boils down to a, the suits didn't understand what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that's not a a negative against them. I think most of them are probably phenomenal business people, Mm -hmm. but they kind of took this broken approach of, oh, it's Mm -hmm. weed, it sells itself. And they missed (laughs) storytelling. They missed quality. They missed these things. And now they're trying to cover it up with mergers and acquisitions and all Mm -hmm. of these other things. But I think 
what we're seeing is kind of the first use case of Canada that's eventually going to move over to the United States right. where these major brands are not going to last. They're losing market share every single day mm -hmm. to their smaller competitors in droves because they don't speak the language. Right. I think the first Canadian LP or the first American multi-state operator, the first MSO in the States that looks at, and this is my favorite example of it, and we're going back to alcohol, but look at what Sam Adams did. Mm -hmm. They went from nobodies to somebodies mm -hmm. because of storytelling and nothing more. They bought in on craft at scale. And I think we're, one, seeing that as an overarching culture narrative in the Western world. We're all kind of, even something like Starbucks is mm -hmm. fake craft mm -hmm. they give the appearance <laughs> of craft they tell a story right. of craft you walk into a starbucks and it doesn't look that different than your local coffee shop it's mm -hmm. got the wood and things mm -hmm. and i think that is inherently ingrained into cannabis culture mm -hmm. we are more geared toward craft and quality and community than any other industry, you know what I mean? Like obviously there are patient groups and things like that for certain illnesses, but you don't see people out there having rallies around, I'm a Coors Light fan. <laughs> We're having Coors Light fan day at the racetrack. Yeah, yeah. You do see that in cannabis, you know what I mean? That's very much a thing. And I think that that's gonna play out to a pretty, destructive end for some of these suits that came in mm -hmm. but i think the other side of that has created a problem in and of itself we've now got the ogs who are leery of everybody who snubbed their nose at anybody who didn't do prison time for it and it's kind of created this hmm. us versus them mentality when the truth of the matter is it's kind of like being a libertarian of sorts both sides are equally wrong, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. Mm. I'm not saying that's my political philosophy necessarily, but that's the stance they take. Mm. And I think that we as cannabis people are eventually going to have to take a similar stance to that mm. or some level mm. of similar stance to that where we have admit that the suits are wrong, we admit that the OGs are wrong, and we convince them that they're half right and bring that half to the table. Check the ego at right. the door, realize the finance guys know how to run a fucking business and realize the OGs know how to grow weed. Hmm. Maybe if you stayed in your lane, you would both benefit. Right. And and that's that's troubling and, and that's the big uh, that's always the big battles. Like you said, it's between those people that are really passionate in the suits and neither are right. And so I, I think where it's gonna go and the companies that are gonna be successful are the ones that, like you said, kind of marry the two concepts together. And I think especially the the bud tenders are in a position where if they start to grow, if they've worked on the front lines, they understand the consumer, they understand the product, and they move up from there into again VP in in, in these kind of positions, I think those companies can succeed but that has to happen over time i think right now there's a culture crisis there though where the people who are currently in those vice president roles currently in those mm -hmm. executive roles are becoming increasingly protectionist of their role in mm -hmm. the industry they're afraid to let them in and we see it in these amazing partnerships that form between these small craft brands and you think it's going to be this we're going to get craft at mm -hmm. scale but it, it oftentimes morphs into an exploitation model where uh, a good example of that is cookies everybody knows cookies right they're, they're for the people that's a, a rapper founded it like he was a bud tinder first they're great except they're now hiring 
people like Christian Bax, who was the Florida cannabis czar who kept edibles illegal, who kept flour illegal, who did all of these antithetical things to what you would think cookie stands for, yet that's the guy who they have running governmental affairs. It just starts to beg a question of what's going on here. And I'm not trying to make a judgment against cookies or Christian Bax as a person or, or a company, but it does tell an enlightening story of kind of what's happening. It, it's the corporatization of cannabis is coming at the expense of the beauty of cannabis. And then they're sitting there wondering why mm. you have a billion unsold milligrams of THC mm. in Canada. Mm. They're wondering why the MSOs are struggling where they can't corner the market. Mm -hmm. It's it's if you know what you're looking at, it's obvious. But I think there's a lot of hype and hockey stick projections and noise that prevent the average person from seeing it. Mm -hmm. But how long does that last? Right. Right. You said something that really interested me, which was craft at a scale. And I've always been told that you can't do craft at scale. And maybe that's why these large companies aren't succeeding is because they're they're trying to do something at scale and appeal to all the consumers and it's not working. Here's my thing here is why do the craft brands blow up? Because they have one brand. Hmm. Too many of these companies are trying to do more than one thing. A, a guy, a Canadian actually, a guy named Rob McPherson talks about all this all the time <laughs> on LinkedIn. Guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So like he's a former president of Bacardi Canada, like a big wig executive. If we're really talking about it and the idea behind all of the LPs and the American MSOs is that they're eventually going to get bought out by these mm -hmm. large alcohol, tobacco, or CPG brands, mm -hmm. well, newsflash to them, people like Rob are the guy sitting across from them at the table. He's not just spouting off at the mouth. He's bringing up a really good point. And something that he drills home is focus. Mm -hmm. Focus on quality Focus on delighting your customer and focus on growing one brand. Look at Nabisco, look at Kraft Foods, look at one of these major alcohol companies. We buy 20 different products from the same company without realizing it because each one of them is treated like their own sacred entity. Each one of them is marketed separately. We don't think about <laughs> Velveeta as not Velveeta. We think about it as Velveeta. We don't think about it as a craft food subsidiary who is a subsidiary of Nabisco or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. or, you know what I mean? That's just not, they're not hitting that mark. They're failing right there. That's a huge disconnect between the companies and the consumers. Interesting. So what does a company that's honing in and doing it right, what does that look like? Are there any re real world examples that have really honed their craft into one product? Hmm. From an MSO or an LP? No, I don't think any of them have really hit it out of the park yet. I think there are a few. Uh, Some are what's a good close. example? Right. They're getting closer by the day. Jushi Holdings does a really good job. I've heard nothing but good things about them, you know, kind of across the board. And maybe I missed something, but uh, I've heard good things there. I've heard Loom Cannabis Co. is doing some pretty good things and they're kind of growing low but mm -hmm. slow. And it all kind of drills back to a thing we heard in the military. Smooth is fast. Fast is smooth. Focus on the one thing. Smooth out the process. Get it down perfect and then repeat it with a different messaging. Right. No, that that's what they should be doing. It's the, the good, better, best categories, right? So I think if you know where you are and you stay in your lane, 
and you don't try to like, if you have a budget product, don't sell it at $12 a gram because nobody's going to buy it. People know better. People don't like to get burned. And I think Redican here in Canada has really been nailing their their budget category. Everything they, they sell is from is $5 a gram. They sell these little packs of pre-rolls, these 0.35 grams, and people buy them because it's consistent. It's always cheap. But it, it it's reliable, right? I I think they're doing a great job, mm-hmm. and I think Rob's talked about them uh, before too. I believe that's probably true. I mean, you, you, the I don't know how it is in Canada, but we have a joke in America where you shop at Target, where you spend ten percent more to not have to shop at Walmart. <laughs> so I think right. I think there is there is something to be said hmm. there. But I think all of these companies, like you brought up, eight different products or eight different brands. Mm-hmm. How are they doing that? Who in that company or those companies sat down and said, well, we're going to crush every product category. Mm -hmm. You're not going to. You're never going to. You're going to miss all of them instead of hitting one of them. And I understand it's counterintuitive. You know what I mean? It, it, It would make sense that if we put out eight brands, one of them will catch fire and we'll drop the rest. What you end up doing is wasting a whole lot of money on seven that you could have just spent on the one that had legs. And I think, you know, even if we go past that, you know what I mean? Like, let, let's get past product quality and assume that every company is selling exactly what they say they're selling. I think there is a lot of PR scandals happening in the industry that people aren't aware about. I think there's a lot of malfeasance. At every level. I mean, I don't think there's a single LP or MSO that doesn't have some lawsuit, some scandal, some thing plaguing them in the back. And I think there's this, I am reticent to use the word, but I think it would be safe to say there is at least some vague level of collusion or or cooperation or at least a memorandum of understanding, albeit maybe not on paper, between the cannabis media the cannabis data companies and the cannabis producers themselves. And I get it, but I think it's problematic for us in the long term. Um, you know, one, one of the things that's people always say like, oh, well, you know, I'm, we have to wait to legalization. Legalization is going to be when everything starts to go up from there. Um, I think you, you made a comment that stuck out to me, which was that when has, when has the government ever stepped in and we've been like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think, I think there's this kind of competition if we're going to go all the way back to the Chad's and OG's conversation. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of push from the advocacy community where they're like, well, we should regulate this thing like a tomato. Mm. And I agree from a moral standpoint, but it would be naive for us to assume that we're not forever going to be at least some level of an upregulated industry like alcohol, like tobacco, like pharmaceuticals, like firearms. Like we're getting put in that category whether we want it to or not. Mm -hmm. And maybe for good, maybe for bad. But I think there is something to be said for if you, if you want to talk about when did the government step in for one time good, I'll go to my home state and where I live now is Virginia. Mm-hmm. They literally, in the law, before rulemaking, before any of the details are set, they're already saying it's going to cost you an extra million dollars to vertically integrate. They're already saying you must give out a certain percentage, no ifs, ands, or buts, to an actual equity applicant. Mm -hmm. And not this bullshit where an MSO buys the rights to an equity applicant's license in a few months. (laughs) It has to stay there. Mm -hmm. And they have legitimate penalties. 
So I think there is maybe maybe I'm being uh, slightly hyperbolic, but I think we're finally at a point where legislators have caught on mm-hmm. to the fact that any loophole they give people, they're going to take advantage of. Of course they are. And I think it also goes the other way. They've also realized that too much regulation of this hmm. only allows those who can afford it to do it. So kind of compare the two different hmm. models there in the states would be Oklahoma and Florida. Florida is the most restricted medical market in the country. Forced vertical integration, 22 license holders, hundreds of millions of dollars for a baseline, barely functioning license. It's ludicrous. On the other side of that, you have Oklahoma, where it's 2500 bucks to get in, and you're golden. Do your thing, man. Figure it out. Right. Fight for it. Right. I think both of those are slightly broken. Mm-hmm. I think Oklahoma is closer to right. But that in and of itself has a problem, because what happens in a truly open market? You have a trail of bodies. Mm. Or eventually what we're going to have is one of these MSOs drops enough cash to buy 50 or 100 licenses there and do exactly what they do. Hmm. But the only way they can do that is by creating cornered markets in other places. And I think something people aren't talking about enough is that federal legalization has a really good chance of hurting most of the MSOs and effectively most of the LPs who are now trying to play in our market because most of them are only sustainable. They're only running in the black in the United States because they Mm -hmm. did what you guys didn't do in Canada. They cornered markets Mm -hmm. like Florida, Mm -hmm. like Virginia's medical market, like some other markets. And it's kind of telling to me that we sit here and talk about, well, when federal legalization comes, when federal legalization comes, well, Mm -hmm. when federal legalization (laughs) comes, it's also going to turn into a penny stock buy. (laughs) What do you mean by that? So we're going to see the, think about it from the perspective of being the guy on the other side of the table, like Rob, we were talking about a minute ago, right? If I were a Kraft Foods or a Procter & Gamble or a a CPG brand, Mm. why would I pay a premium for a cannabis company that's not crushing it? Yeah, they're big enough. Mm. Yeah, they look right Mm. from the distance, but they're kind of ugly when you get up close. They're Mm. all covered in pockmarks and Mm -hmm. they've got problems and they're doing all these things. Why wouldn't you just wait for them to fail and then buy them for pennies on the dollar? If we look at the pay packages of the executive suites of the first crop of Canadian LPs and American MSOs, these are all pump and dumps. The specific group of them know that the company will fail. And most of them have set it up to where even if the company fails, they get a payout based on the largest size of the company not the size of the company at the point of failure. And who bears that burden? It's all the retail investors who are there now. Mm. So it's not even like it's a secret. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at how they set their stuff up, they have no actual plans of getting bought. (laughs) They don't think that's actually going to happen. They just say that shit so that the stock market gives them another boost later. Right. Let's just pump. Let's pump. Let's pump. Let's not worry about what's going to happen later. Let's just keep those eva- those valuations high, right? <sighs> How did we get here? How did we go from this is cannabis, this is for the people, to we're we're just going to make this the shadiest industry ever? Like that. That's what blows my mind. I'm not going to name names because I'm not trying to get sued, <laughs> but there is a specific law firm that built the American and Canadian cannabis industry off of oil and mining futures. Hmm. 
That is what they did. That's where the law firm came from. They came from the oil and mining industry. Mm -hmm. And they built this on the idea of like a field of dreams thing. If you build it, they will come. If we grow it, they will sell it. Hmm. And we're starting to see that fall apart in Canada. You know, a billion milligrams of leftover THC. Mm-hmm. So basically what they did is rather than having the solid data of a geological survey, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what we would have in mining or oil. We would know exactly how many reserves are in that mm-hmm. vein or whatever yeah, yeah, silly yeah. mining term they use. They think that that's the same way. If we build a big enough greenhouse, it will all sell. And it won't. And it's not. And it's being proven day on day. So this very specific law firm and group of lobbyists built the entire thing. And then here's the fun part. Most of the data companies in cannabis took money from the same investors that invest in the companies that they report on. So their data is inherently subjective. And once you do that, what do they have a choice to do but to give the projections that benefit the mm-hmm. stock pump because mm-hmm. they all make money off the same thing, Gross. right? So what's happening here is that we've built an entire house of cards off of a broken idea. Mm-hmm. We've watched companies figure that out because it's all one team. Mm-hmm. If we really want to get into it, it's the George Carlin thing of, you know, if you're not a billionaire or a millionaire, you're not on the same team and you're just, you know, they built that and they built it in a way to basically fraudulently pull in money. I'm not trying to, again, I'm not going to name names on this because mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get sued because these are very <laughs> crazy words. Yeah. But I would encourage you or anyone who listens once this gets posted to look at it. Look at the formation of some of the Canadian LPs. Look at the formation of some of the American MSOs. Look at who formed them. We're talking people with track records of fraud. We're talking about people with long lists of problems. Like there's one in particular I can think of that just sold his company for hundreds of millions of dollars. And this particular individual has a reputation in the venture capital world of selling shells. He literally walked investors Mm -hmm. through a building with nameplates on it once and nothing else. (laughs) Man. Yeah. And and so for people that are really passionate about this and that want to actually make an impact and make money in in the industry, how do you do that without being shady? Do you just go to the ancillary services? Do you go? I think, I think ancillary services are an option. Mm. I think, that there is going to be a reckoning soon where those kind of people are going to have a day. Because mm-hmm. I think hmm. something like metric is going away. You know what I mean? The big American track and trace. Because we're starting to have emerging technologies that people don't want to talk about. But like blockchain. Blockchain is going to fix hmm. a lot of this. Smart contract technology, immutable ledger track and trace. The ability to know right now Mm -hmm. what you're looking at and how right so i think something like uh i don't know you're gonna have to expand on different options (laughs) you're gonna have to expand on on the blockchain and cannabis okay so i i've taken on a role as a vice president of corporate initiative of a company called multi-chain ventures we have the whole uh so right now in nevada where they're kind of doing a uh proof of concept use thing with a pilot program It's a closed-loop financial ecosystem, Mm -hmm. meaning that anybody in cannabis can tokenize their income, so it removes the cash-only model, right? 
They can tokenize it and interact with each other in the tokens for two purposes. One, because it's easier and safer. Two, you have the smart contract. So there is no more escrow. There is no more sending of proof of funds. There is no more of this 11 lawyers in the middle determining the money. It either is or isn't there, and the smart block or the block only gets validated if it's there. So there is no workaround like we see now. I think another aspect that's not something we're currently doing, but is in our wheelhouse and is part of the things that we've begun the process of trying to patent is track and trace. We already have it in a lot of U.S. states with metric and RFID tags. Well, let's call it like it is. That's dinosaur technology. Mm. That's stuff that's old school. I can go buy an RFID reader right now on Amazon for $87 and buy a label printer and print out my own RFID labels right now. Mm. So I think something like blockchain with NFC technology is going to quickly take that over, right? We can also talk about cryptocurrencies as a means to work around. Not necessarily work around because it's kind of a bad word, but a... Mm means of which to work within the confines of the broken banking system in American cannabis. Hmm. Now, you're not under the purview of that. You're technically trading assets by the view of the, the federal government. So it's a different modality with which to approach some of these things. And I think the key piece, the key thing that makes blockchain exciting, the key thing that makes cryptocurrencies exciting, the key thing that makes decentralized ledger technology, decentralized finance, all of the things that have kind of sprung up around it, exciting is, is that it's trans-freaking-parent. It is a transparent, instant verifiable, or as close to instant as you can under the auspices of using electrical lines and Wi-Fi. It's as close as you can get to that. So it removes a lot of different barriers that we see that allow for this, what do we want to call it, infidelity within the yeah. industry? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, or malfeasance within yeah. the industry. Yeah, so yeah. I, think it's, I think these technologies are incredibly well suited to any upregulated industry. And if we really want to call a spade a spade, mm-hmm. we're taking two incredibly quote-unquote high-risk endeavors and combining them into a no-risk endeavor. Interesting. Um, and to talk, so to, just to tie back into cannabis and decentralization, where where do you see, you know, if we if we had to paint a best case scenario for how cannabis looks in, let's let's even just say the U.S. Do you, do you think we shouldn't have these vertically vertically integrated companies? Do you think everybody should be able to to start their own cannabis company? Or are we going to have mostly just small craft growers do you think there's going to be scale I, i'm just curious about what what you think the the future looks like i don't have a crystal ball so i don't know what the future looks like uh-huh. i do however have some theories in things i have no issue with a vertical operator okay i have no issue with a multi-state operator mm-hmm. i hope every cannabis company becomes a national brand mm-hmm. in their own right i do however have an issue with forced vertical integration I do, however, have an issue with uh, regulatory capture. I do, however, have an issue with the positioning some of these companies have taken mm-hmm. to profit off of the chaos. Right. 
because really the United States is not one cannabis industry. It's a misnomer to say that. It's 34, 35, 36, however many freaking states are legal at this point. That's how many different industries they are because they can't cross state lines. Hmm. There is no money crossing state lines. There is no product crossing state lines. So I think eventually what we're going to end up with is a return to traditional unit economics where there are producer and consumer states where there are Mm -hmm. more like agriculture Hmm. because agriculture easily translates into consumer packaged goods we do it all the time Hmm. whether it be Hmm. cheese or or you know the lettuce we buy or the Hmm. eggs we Hmm. buy and i think what we're going to end up seeing is that it's somewhat similar to milk so think about it that way there are mega conglomerates that control milk right but every, every state, every county, every municipality you go in, you're buying different milk. Hmm. Sitting here in Stanton, Virginia, I buy Shenandoah's Best Milk. Hmm. If I'm sitting in Orlando, Florida, I buy T.G. Lee Milk. But they all work together. That is a, those are all arms hmm. of a multinational conglomerate or a multinational hmm. touch point for a, a larger thing. So I think eventually what we're going to see is a return to something like that something that's going to push into that model. Right. right. And I think what we're going to see eventually is the rise of some pretty large major brands, Mm -hmm. but they're built on actual carbon copies of what they're doing, not just licensing their name Mm -hmm. to a different Mm -hmm. operator somewhere else. Because that's a lot of what we see. How the heck can Jungle Boys from California legally exist in Florida if we can't bring their genetics? They can't. They found the company in Florida to grow similar genetics and label it the same stuff. It doesn't exist. And if they are, then we've got a way different question on our hands of why are they getting away with this? What's going on? And obviously, again, my perfect world, hell yeah, we'd be crossing state lines. We'd be having interstate commerce. We'd have all of these things, but we don't currently. So where is that break point? Where is the, the, where is the issue falling apart? And my concern is, is the cat already out of the bag in the sense that there are already these MSOs that have too much money? And hopefully, like you said, they might, they should run out of money in a couple of years. But my concern is, are we too far gone in that sense? But also, are we too far divided between each state? So once federal legalization happens, what are they going to say? We follow Virginia's model, we follow Florida's or California's. How, how do we do that at, at scale? So I think once we have the ability to cross state lines, mm-hmm. we have the ability to actually control the value chain because that's the big selling point, right? Mm-hmm. People want vertical integration because you control every piece of the chain. We don't see that in other consumer packaged goods. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're going to see that long-term in cannabis. I think what we're going to end up seeing is kind of going back to the milk model. We're going to see the ability for these companies that are currently sequestered into their markets to expand actually and not just in a licensing agreement because every Floridian patient I know that took a trip to California, took a trip to Oregon, took a trip to California, right? Or Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington, any of those, they're blown away. They're like, I didn't know products came in this quality at this price point. Yeah. Myself included, man, I work in the industry and I remember walking into a dispensary in Oregon a couple months ago and handing the guy a $20 bill and expecting Mm -hmm. Florida prices. Just, you know, Mm -hmm. I knew better. I should have not been surprised, Mm -hmm. but I was. Handed a guy a $20 bill and he handed me five pre-rolls and I went, did you count wrong? (laughs) And then I smoked it. 
You know what I mean? And then I smoked yeah. it, and I was I was put on my butt. Like I, I had to sit down for a minute and go, wait a minute here. <laughs> and I think that speaks volumes. You know what I mean? Like uh, to go all the way full circle to what we kind of been talking about: quality and storytelling trump all. And what do the small brands currently have that the big ones don't? They have quality and they have a good story. That is going to be unfettered upon federal legalization. Because those are the real things that if I were looking at it, if I were the big bank once federal legalization happens, yeah. if I were the big company growing you know, or looking to come into cannabis, mm -hmm. why would I buy a failing cannabis giant when I can buy a small to medium-sized operator mm -hmm. and teach them how to do what they do bigger? Right. Right? Because right. what, what, do, what do major consumer packaged goods brands do better than scale? Mm. They grow scale. And we've seen it in the consumer packaged goods world where a small mom and pop brand gets bought by the big guys and somehow manages to keep it. They, it's not all of them, obviously. You know what I mean? Right. But there are some. Like Papa John's makes the same pizza they made when they were founded <laughs> as they do now. Yeah. And they actually built in SOPs, best practices, sourcing guidelines. They built it in at its core. I think that's the key. I, I myself I used to work I used to work at McDonald's that was my first uh, job essentially I mean first job on paper and but like you said there are SOPs there were quality manuals for every single process and you had to adhere to them and that's why if I go to one McDonald's or another and I get fries they're going to be the same every single time but that has to be built into the core of the business that's that's the key well I've, I've eaten McDonald's in at least 12 countries at this mm -hmm. point and you know what a quarter, double quarter pounder with cheese and fries and a Coke tastes the exact same. Unreal. It doesn't matter if I was in Kuwait right. or Georgia right. or America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that combined with, like you said, if, if I knew there was these, these group of people out of Oregon that have been doing this for the last 20 years and I know their story, I know their brand, I know the types of product that they put out, I would buy their product any time. Ten, we're ten back times to Sam Adams. Right. We're back to Sam right. Adams. They had a good story mm. and they figured out how to do what they do bigger because they didn't complicate it. Mm -hmm. Everybody, most most of these major companies are real hip on, I'm going to buy the newest technology. I'm going <laughs> to buy this yeah. crazy stuff. And it's like, did you really need that? You know what you really need is just more of what you had to begin with. Mm -hmm. Sam Adams didn't change how they built it. They just built a bigger factory with the exact same, you know, hmm. whatever those big vats are called that they use. Hmm. They just made more of them. They didn't hmm. make bigger ones. They didn't change anything other than the number of them doing it. I, I look, you're you're speaking the truth here, and I think brands that resonate with the consumer, they're Again, they're the ones that are going to succeed. And I don't see any of that in Canada right now. I see some some hints. I see some tastes of people. Like I, I, go, to, I go back to one retail store because I get the same experience every time. The staff are trained. Mm -hmm. It's a nice display. And that was my first sign of going, okay, this is why I'm not going to the, the other eight on the same street. is because this company is really right. trying to hone in. <laughs> I mean, that brings up a really good point, too. I think, I think uh, bud tenders don't get enough credit. 
Oh, no. This isn't selling cell phones and it's not selling McDonald's. You know what I mean? McDonald's literally built it into their business model. They mm. know 85, 90% of their staff is going to turn over. Mm. And what we're seeing is the same things happening in cannabis, mm. except cannabis is totally different. Mm. You could teach anybody and their brother how to make a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. There, there is no human being on the planet. I could teach a five-year-old yeah. how to do it. I cannot teach everybody how to mm. properly educate a patient on cannabis. Mm. I can't. That takes a certain level of skill. It's not an entry-level job. Yes, it mm. is an entry-level job by cannabis standards. And by pay. But no, yeah, but by no means is it an entry-level job on skill. Neither is a mm. trimmer. Mm -hmm. Neither is a lab tech. All of mm. those are skilled labor jobs that require a specific touch, a specific... Mm -hmm piece of an equation mm -hmm. that is being missed mm -hmm. in a lot of the big companies mm -hmm. training and stuff because mm -hmm. it goes back to that old saying you know the ceo the ceo and the cfo are talking and the c the ceo is like or the cfo is like well, what happens if we spend all this money training mm -hmm. the people and they leave and the ceo goes well yeah what happens if we don't spend any money on them and they don't <laughs> that's wow that's way worse right exactly uh, and I've said it before, I think bud tenders are, the trouble here is that they're here because they're passionate. They know they're getting taken advantage of. They know they're getting paid minimum wage, but they stay as bud tenders instead of going to Starbucks to make more money because they don't want to be at Starbucks. They want to be in cannabis, and yet they're so underappreciated in the industry. I totally agree. I think it's a sad state that we're in where people are willing to put up with what basically amounts to an abusive relationship mm -hmm. just to work with what they want to work with. Mm -hmm. And I think it ends up burning a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's mm -hmm. not just bud tenders. That's working professionals coming who think this is going to be exciting. Oh, I have experience at craft foods or I have experience at mm -hmm. Crocs mm -hmm. or I have experience in this. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult. You know what I mean? Like let's call a spade a spade. Every person in cannabis is a transplant. None of us got, a, at this point anyways, very, very, very few people, their very first job was in cannabis. Right. All of us worked somewhere else, you know what I mean? Oh, like, that's a I worked at Harley. Fucking point, yeah. I worked at Harley-Davidson. Huh. I was a Harley, I was a Harley BDC <laughs> manager. Like, I, I ran sales and marketing for Harley dealerships mm. before this, and I lasted. But I know a whole lot of people who had identical criteria to me, maybe a different company, but mm. they came, and they got washed out. And they shouldn't have gotten washed out because those skills, those outside skills mm -hmm. are needed. Mm -hmm. Everybody, every single one of us should remember what it was like to be new, should mm -hmm. remember what it was like to try to figure this thing out. They mm -hmm. should remember where they freaking came from mm -hmm. because we didn't come from cannabis and yeah i'm sure there's a few exceptions to the rule and i'm sure some og will be mad and they're like no i've been working in the grow house since i was nine years old but the average person the vast majority yeah. i'd be even willing to say it's in the 99 percentile mm -hmm. they worked somewhere else they came from a cell phone store or starbucks or mcdonald's or they came from some other thing or they and came they out of college and, mm -hmm. and they're bringing it in and they're bringing mm -hmm. the passion and the passion mm -hmm. is being squished mm -hmm by the people trying to squeeze every penny. And I think they miss the point that well-trained staff, well-educated staff, and well-appreciated staff legitimately return more value. Mm -hmm. They do. They sell more. Mm -hmm. They do bigger things. They move faster. Mm -hmm. They work more without question. 
You know what I mean? I, I think it is a sad state of affairs that people are miserable as a bud tender mm-hmm. when they should be living the time of their life. They get to talk about weed all day. <laughs> no, it's true. And I wish they had a, you know, a clear path for progression um, from that stance. But we're just not at that point in the industry. Right. Like you said, this is brand new, especially the legal industry. And especially we're not as developed as as other CPG um companies or as mcdonald's or as the milk industry so it's tough for those people that did start you know think about a 19 year old who their first job was a bud tender right where do they go from from there i don't understand so i i'm gonna reject the sentiment that newness is a culprit Mm -hmm. it's not supposedly these companies are filling themselves with transplants that have management experience Mm. that have the ability to understand like Mm -hmm. yeah it's a specialized industry but retail's retail man production production supply chain is supply chain this shouldn't be there and it leaves me to think that the only real reason the only real thought process going on here is protectionist ideology it's people who have gotten in over their heads didn't figure out the industry part and then forgot where they came from they're 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 holding people down they're not giving these clear abilities to move forward to some of these people because they're afraid because they know if that person becomes their equal it's only a matter of time before they become their greater right right you have to hold them down it all goes back to the what is the whole concept of social equity and social equality what is the whole concept of privilege Mm -hmm. if we really have to get into it without going uber political what is it but privilege for these managers, directors, vice presidents, and executives to hold back people who are way better than them? I mean, I've read recent statistics where it's like most people in cannabis in the United States have three jobs in the first two years. Most cannabis jobs last less than four months. And I am a product of that. My first cannabis job didn't last very long. And you know what I've had to do every time? I've never been promoted inside of a cannabis company. I've jumped to another company right. to go up in, in value. Because, and I think this is one of the few places where the grass actually is kind of greener on the other side, Mm -hmm. if anything, for your own selfish needs. And I'm not saying selfish in a bad way. I mean, in a legitimate, Mm -hmm. take care of your family, take care of yourself way. I guarantee you right now, there are people who are bud tenders that would be better served being managers or directors. And the Mm -hmm. people who are managers and directors have no business being in the industry at all. Mm. I think that it goes all the way up to other executives, other people right. like me who who occupy a higher quote unquote level in the space. Like, and I hope I I hope this translates to a peer to peer learning thing rather than an outsider looking in, because I think that's the one thing that we try to do differently, especially at Good Ideas, where we're playing the due diligence and and vetting role where we're working at the highest levels to help Mm. them fix it. This is not a criticism because they suck. It is a constructive criticism because I've been there. I've done that. I've opened dispensaries. I've trained bud tenders. I've developed SOPs and best practices. I've been (laughs) them. Mm. And I know they can do better. They just don't want to. I think. Or they don't know how, or sure. they're not being given an opportunity to do so. Hmm. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts, and here's the trouble: is now I'm I'm running out of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry about that. No, hey, it's um, you're you're 
Yeah, dude, you're super, super interesting, and you're really well versed in all this. Um, and I mean, first of all, I just want to thank you for for coming on and for chatting, and for for people that want to hear more from you, they want to they want to learn about good ideas. Where can they find you? Uh, so I'm all over LinkedIn. Uh, my name is pretty easy to find. There's <laughs> only one of me in the whole world. Um, if not that, we've got goodideas.net for our actual consulting stuff. We've got grassetrackssnakes.com where we're collecting industry horror stories as kind of an industry watchdog and whistleblower thing. And then for anything for the blockchain and stuff, uh, multichain.ventures is where they would find them. Um, yeah, I think that's about it for the where to find me. I have an Instagram I warn anybody who tries to find me there that it's me with my hair down. So you're going to see lots, lots of pictures of my cats and my dogs and my wife and not a lot of cannabis stuff, but it is what it is. Um, no, that's good. Keep, I think that's I, I, it. I like that. I like keeping your personal life and your work life separate. I think that's, I think that's important. I mean, for some, I, I think you would agree with this, and this will be my kind of closing thought. For a lot of us, cannabis is our life. This right. is more than just a job. It's more than just a thing I do to make money. It's mm -hmm. a passion. Mm -hmm. It's a driving need to help the industry in any way possible because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I didn't start this to make money. I started it because I was a broke-ass, miserable veteran who smoked some weed, and it changed my fucking life, like full stop. So for me, I just want that for others. It, 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 it is mm. keeping those two separate is a byproduct of a growing, I, I don't know what we want to call it, uh, a growing feeling that people know who I am, I guess, <laughs> which is kind of weird and it's not something I'm adjusted to. But to yeah. me, it's like uh, you still have to put on the corporate face sometimes despite the fact that I'm very critical. But I think that goes right back to the, I've been there, I've done that. I'm just trying to help people do it better because I see them screwing up and I don't want them to. Mm -hmm. If I had my perfect world, all the MSOs would figure it out tomorrow and they would start putting out great products and tell great stories about them. If you want to hear more from Brett, be sure to give him a follow. And as always, if you want to hear more from me, it's coffeecannabis.ca or coffeecannabispodcast on Instagram. New episode in two weeks.